direct your attention to the Word of God to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And we have moved now past the Beatitudes. It was a wonderful six or eight months. We I don't know how long we stayed on them, but it's been a while. But we're now into a new section. Here in this particular passage, the Lord is going to use two metaphors to tell us something we need to know about our purpose as believers, as those who are characterized by the Beatitudes of his sermon, now he's going to tell us what our purpose in the earth, in the world is according to his design. So hear now the word of the Lord. 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We have two metaphors before us. We'll look at the first one today, and that is that of salt. I thought I'd have a little fun, so I did a little research on salt. And you'd be surprised how there's just not a whole lot to say about it, (laughs) except that it's salty. It has some kind of quality in it that is used to usually preserve, as in meat, to purify. There's about a dozen different compounds of, of salt that are used, and a lot of them are used in detergents, and they're used to cleanse, to purify. Uh, They're also used to take away the acidity that is in baking soda, it's a form of a sodium compound, and it takes away the acidity that's in anything from uh, a bee sting or anything else you might imagine that has a lot of acid in it. There's commercial and uh, domestic uses for all of those things. A couple of salt compounds are used for fertilizer, sodium nitrate, for example. There's just all kinds of uses for sodium compounds. But for old-fashioned NaCl, there's just a limited amount. And yet the Lord uses this, I think, enigmatic kind of metaphor to help us work through it. So I thought, well, the Lord gave the Sermon on the Mount, and we have four Gospels, and at least... One or two of them ought to give us some parallel uh, wording so that we can get a little more insight of what we're talking about when the Lord says. And by the way, he says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, go out and become the salt of the earth. Strive hard to be salt. None of these admonitions. Work your way up to some standard of saltiness. He didn't say any of that. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Those of you who our disciples of Christ, are already the salt of the earth. The question is, do you have that saltiness, whatever it is? 
Are you insipid? Have you lost your saltiness? Have you lost your efficacy? Have you lost your taste? And if you have, then the Lord does one of those dark sayings, as He often does, and we have to account for those and take those very seriously. He says, you're good for nothing. In other words, something that's good for nothing is something that's presupposed to have a purpose. But if it doesn't fulfill its purpose, it's good for nothing. It's ineffective, feckless, and therefore useless. You're good for nothing. But to be thrown out and cast into the streets, into the, the lanes and the highways. And by the way, that was one of the uses of insipid salt. Massive amounts of salt were taken from the Dead Sea, which most of you know is a, the River Jordan flows down through the Holy Land and it dead ends in the Dead Sea. There's no outlet. And as it does, it accumulates over the years a huge bed of evaporated water leaves salt crystals. And so much of the salt of the Dead Sea is insipid. Now, there's some areas around it where it's good salt that's used for various purposes. Salt has to do with worth. It's interesting. It's, uh, if you're worthless, if you don't have the, the effectiveness of salt, if you're not salty, you're, you're worthless. But it accounts for worth. We get our word salary from the word salt. And it was very important in the ancient world. One of the important uses of salt, by the way, was to be thrown out and to cast into the streets. Because when it did that, it provided, not only did it harden the, the, the turf, and so much was just uh, uh, roads that were made of just gravel and sand and dirt and clay, and it would turn that into a little bit of a hard surface. But most importantly, it would keep the grass from growing, and it would keep the lane open. And so salt, useless salt, insipid salt, had a purpose. It was to be thrown out and trodden under foot. And so what is the Lord trying to say our job is, our purpose is as believers on earth? Well, I sought some help from the other gospels. You know you can always do that in your Bible study with the gospels. You try to find if you've got an old-fashioned harmony of the gospels and most of us in your study Bibles have a, a listing of the parallel passages and of course uh, many of the gospels have the same uh, uh, passages, parables, and uh, sayings of Jesus, events, and it gets an interesting study to see those Gospels. I think most of you know that three of them are called the synoptic Gospels, the synoptic Gospel, the same view, the same way of seeing the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John has a completely different approach in so many ways. He organizes his, his entire uh, book, which he covers a lot of the same material, except he includes a large amount of long discourses by Christ, some of which are not even recorded in the other Gospels at all. You have in John's Gospel, Jesus encountering people, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and, and others, the blind man. You have in John's Gospel, I am sayings, and they flow through there where he says, I am the light of the world. We'll look at that later on, and he says, I am the bread of life. And he says, I am the water of life. He says, I am the way, I am the truth and the light. And, and I am the resurrection and the life. And so those I am sayings track you through John. And then there are signs 
Very significant signs, a definite number of signs that Jesus did. The first one we know was the turning of the water into wine at Cana at the marriage ceremony. But he goes all the way through various signs that Jesus gave them. The last sign was his post-resurrection appearance to his disciples when he enabled them to catch fish. And these signs have, as the word indicates, significance. And they are very important in understanding. Now that I've given you a lecture on the Gospel of John, <clears throat> turn to the Gospel of Mark. I got carried away. I'm sorry. That doesn't happen very often, does it? Does it? <laughs> That's what, <clears throat> so this is going to help us a lot. Listen carefully to Jesus' words in a, in a parallel passage. In Mark chapter 9, he includes some of the teachings of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. So, ever, so listen to this, <clears throat> and I'm going to have a quiz and ask for three or four volunteers to tell me what they think this means. If I had time, if this was a class, I would do that. But, but I won't. But listen. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is Jesus speaking. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Is that helpful? I mean, it, it, it's still... Uh, difficult. It's still kind of a dark saying in a lot of ways. One helpful thing here is to look and see where he says, when he says at the very beginning there uh, in verse 49, for every one will be salted with fire. A footnote in your ESV will tell you that that word translated one is in some manuscripts the word sacrifice. For every sacrifice will be salted with fire. Now that opens a little window for us. That opens up a little window in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about in just a second. But here he's saying essentially what we heard in, in Matthew's gospel, but he has an admonition. He does give an instruction, have salt in yourselves. In other words, you are the salt, you be the salt, the salt is in you. If you don't do the work of preserving, purifying, cleansing, and in some instances, some element of sacrifice in there. Some element of sacrifice that is being burned with fire in there. And maybe you don't have the, the right salt. Maybe you have become insipid yourselves. That might be a good instruction. Well, let's see if we get more help in the Gospel of Luke. If you would turn to Luke 4, oh, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it, it's a short passage. Luke 14, Jesus says in, in verse uh, 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And Jesus says, as he ends this passage, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, Lord, we hear, but it's, it's, it's difficult to understand, but it's a little bit helpful if you look at the verse. Context is important when you read your Bible. You know that, don't you? Well, I mean to tell you, about half the biblical interpretation you'll hear 
in popular parlance out there is misinterpreted just out of context, if nothing else. You don't have to know the Greek. You don't have to know the Hebrew. You don't have to know the Latin. You don't have to know any of that stuff. You can just read the verses in front and the verses behind the passage and see they've missed it altogether. Jesus or whoever the apostle was or the writer wasn't even talking about that. An interpretation is as far-fetched and erroneous as it can possibly be. But in context, the very line of Jesus before he says this, he says this. So therefore, and it's part of a continuing discourse. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then he says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? But it is of no use for the soil or for the manure. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Maybe we get a little more help. It's opened up a window there, this notion of sacrifice as part of, or has some relationship to salt. Maybe we can get just a little more of a handle, a little more shape on what this teaching is trying to tell us if we follow that notion of sacrifice. And it's not hard to follow because when you go back to the Old Testament, and I'll just sketch these for you, going back to Exodus 30, 31, when Moses instructed the priest, which was Aaron, his brother, and, and those in the, the high priesthood office and family to prepare an anointing oil. He had certain perfumes and certain oils that were mixed together in really kind of a secret formula. It was called the, the oil of the apothecary or of the pharmacy. It was put together with these, these spices and these perfumes and these oils. But then one of the ingredients that was to be put into it was salt. The, the, the anointing oil was to be sacrificed. The anointing oil was used to anoint all sorts of things. They anointed the furniture in the tabernacle. They anointed the high priest. They anointed the other priest. It was something that, was, that always had that element of salt in it. It may have been just to be a preserver, but it also may have been to tell something about it. Over in Ezekiel, we find that when a newborn baby was born, a newborn baby was rubbed down with salt. What, what was that? Maybe it was to have the purifying and disinfecting uh, agency that was needed to, to cleanse the baby and to make sure that the baby had, uh, was free of germs himself and was protected from those around him. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, and this passage is referred to in, in most of the commentaries uh, that, uh, that you'll read, there's a mention there of the salt of the covenant, the salt of the covenant. And we're familiar with the covenant, the series of covenants that God made with man and then with, with uh, Abraham and then later with, uh, with Moses and the people. Uh, the salt of the covenant. What, what is the salt of the covenant? Well, difficult to, to see uh, when looking at what it is, but it's interesting to notice that it was, it was always mixed. In, this, in, in Leviticus 2, it is mixed with the grain offering. When they would bring the grain, they would bring it in a sheath, and they would wave it before the Lord in sacrifice. Then eventually they would break down the grain, and they would make fine meal, and they would bake 
a, a cake. They would bake a loaf. And this, of course, is the background of Jesus saying he is the bread of life. And in that recipe for that offering was salt. We're beginning to see that salt seems to be um, intrinsic to sacred things, to holy things, to things that are sacrificed, to things that are set aside for holy purposes, as we see there in the, um, the Leviticus Holiness Code. In Ezekiel 34, 43, 24, when Ezekiel imagines the reestablishment of the temple and everything being rebuilt, and of course his vision is fulfilled literally when the people return to the land after the exile, but then it's fulfilled completely and fully in Christ and the church and the new heaven and the new earth. And you read those latter chapters of Ezekiel and you get this wonderful picture of, of, of the future of God's people, the temple of God being um, uh, cast in the language of the old temple. Although what was temple that was going to be built in Ezekiel's prophecy was the second temple. The temple would be built under Zerubbabel and under Haggai and, and the leaders in Israel there upon the return from exile. And what all is mentioned here is, is a restore that there is a sprinkling of salt upon the altar. It's a, it's a sacred ceremony that they have when they rebuild the temple and put in it a new altar, a new brazen altar, the place where they're going to burn the sacrifices. And all of the foods, the meats especially, the meat and the two things that are mentioned there are the thigh and the breast of the animals because those are the two things that are eaten. The entrails and other parts of the animal are burned up. The hides are, are used to some extent, but they're also burned up. So much of the sacrifice is consumed but these primary portions of the sacrificial animal, whether it was a bull or a goat or a ram, these, these, uh, these animals, I started to say these more beefy animals, <laughs> but, but these more significant and, and, and larger animals were used as food. First for the high priest and his family, and then they were salted and preserved for future use and for the people. So we're beginning to get, get a little bit more of a picture of, of what we we're looking at here. And when we come... When we come to the, to the New Testament teaching, we see that when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, the people are not quite as clueless as we are when they hear him. They know what he's talking about. They know this central, essential, effective ingredient is got to be part of the Christian character in order for its preservation. And Jesus now says, we're the salt of the earth and we will be the ones who will bring about the preservation of the race. In other words, in other words let me make it real clear. If Christians are not in the world, in the mass of humanity, if there are not some Christians in there sprinkled in there like salt, maybe in some cases kind of rubbed in there like salt, if we're not in that particular position, the whole earth rots, decays, turns into absolute destruction and pollution. In other words, God always has to have a salty, godly remnant in a place in order for him to preserve that place. And as long as God's got a people on earth, the judgment is stayed. The judgment doesn't come. As long as God has a people on earth, they are preserving 
even though they're persecuted, as he talked about in the passage before, and even though they have a difficult time, and even though they suffer in this life, but suffering and sacrifice is part of being salt. It's part of being that, that ingredient that God recognizes to keep his people pure and to keep the, the humanity preserved. You say, Ron, that may sound a little far-fetched to me. Well, let me give you a concrete story. It's in the book of Genesis. You know it very well. I'm just going to sketch it for you this morning. It's in Genesis 18 and 19. It's the story of Lot. It's the story of Lot. Lot had pitched his tent towards Sodom. That was a beautiful ground over there. That was, that was beautiful grasslands, and these men were shepherds. They had massive flocks, and, and Lot and, uh, and his uncle Abraham had come all the way across the Euphrates Valley down the Fertile Crescent into this land, and they were looking for the best properties. And Lot always had an eye for prosperity. He had an eye for being contemporary. He had an eye for wanting the activity and the fun stuff. He couldn't stand the rural life. He wanted to be near the city. And so he goes and pitches his tent toward Sodom. And before long, we find out without even realizing that Lot is living in Sodom, a, a really Las Vegas kind of a town. It's got all kinds of excitement. It's got all kinds of, of things that are, that are godly and ungodly. And the ungodliness begins to take over. And it's interesting that, that uh, the Lord comes to see the wickedness of Sodom. We won't go into the details of the wicked, the nature of that wickedness, but it was an abomination in the sight of the Lord, what society had turned into. And the Lord then came to Abraham when he told that, uh, uh, that he was going to destroy. And Abraham came before the Lord and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And by the way, the New Testament refers to righteous lot. And that shocked me the first time I read that because I thought, I don't think of Lot as righteous. Yet he was one of God's people. He was, he was, he was a, a, a God-believer, a God-fearer. He was part of that covenant family to begin with. That call, he had come out along with Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees, etc. And so here we have righteous Lot in the town. And so the Lord says, I'm going to have to destroy it because it's wicked. And then the Lord will send, in the story, as you well know, he will send a couple of angels, who sometimes called angels, sometimes called men, but he, had, he sends some people to actually rescue Lot. But here's the conversation that takes place. Um, Abraham asked the Lord, said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Suppose we have 50 pillars of salt in the land. Of, uh, in, the, in, the, in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Will, wouldn't that be good enough for you to preserve the people? And the Lord said, it certainly would. And, Je and Abraham says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He's going to be just. God's going to be fair. God knows who's righteous and who's not. He knows how many righteous. The Lord knows. This saying is faithful. The Lord knows those that are his. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. He knows who's in the land. He knows who's righteous. He knows who, who's functioning as salt, a preservative of that entire society, even though the society is wicked. So God goes. And then I don't know how they did the survey. Or maybe Abraham just took the word of the Lord and uh, the Lord said, he said, suppose that the 50 righteous are lacking. Uh, will you destroy the whole city with fire? Abraham asked the Lord. Uh, he said, I will not destroy it if I find uh, 45 people there. 
So then they begin a bargaining process. And, you know, they go down by fives and tens. If there's 40 people there, I won't destroy it. Suppose there's 30 righteous people. Suppose there's 30 good, strong grains of salt in, in Sodom. The Lord said, I won't destroy it for 30 people. He said, I will not. He said, well, suppose 20 are found there. We have a diminishing returns here on, on the number of righteous people. But still, the Lord says, for the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham speaks again, and of course, he's been in this dialogue with God. He said, oh, let the Lord not be angry with me, for I'll speak again. But once more, suppose there are ten. And the Lord says, I won't destroy Sodom for the sake of ten righteous souls. Whole prosperous throng of a city. God's going to take ten souls. He's going to preserve that city. He's going to be the salt that it takes to keep that city pure. But... The Lord went away and, so and found that there were not even five righteous people. In fact, the best we calculate from the context of the story, there was only one righteous man in Sodom. And then you know the story how the Lord sent the angels to rescue him and what happened overnight. And, and finally, the, the, the Lord said, told Lot to get out of Sodom. He was going to destroy it. And, and even then, Lot wasn't all that anxious. He loved the world and the things of the world. He was a righteous man, but he had remaining sin in him. But the Lord in his mercy was here to do what God does so often. He's done it in the case of the whole humanity in sending his son, Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you that probably this morning he's done it to nearly everyone in this room. And that is he has graciously reached down and snatched you as a brand from the fire. Saved your soul, your hell-bound, condemned soul. And that's what God's going to do for Lot. Lot found grace in the eyes of the Lord, just like Abraham had, just like Noah had, just like all the Enoch and all the great patriarchs of the past. The Lord says, I'm going to save Lot. And he, he literally, the men, the angels that, that God had sent, grabbed Lot, his wife, and the two daughters and rushed them out of the city just ahead of the destruction. And they're going to take them out into the hills. Said, go for the hills. Get, get away. Got to go across the prairie. You got to get far away. You've got to get up in those, basically those uh, Judean hills. You've got to escape. And Lot didn't want to do that. He, he couldn't stand being in rural life. He wanted to be in city life. He said, let me go to a, a city. Let me go to a town. So he ends up going to a small town uh, that's, that uh, is not too far away. And the Lord brings them there. But at the last minute as they're leaving, Lot's wife looks back. And when she did, the Bible says she turned to a pillar of salt. You, and by the way, this is on the edge. Sodom and Gomorrah was located on the edge of the Dead Sea. And the Bible says about all the monuments of the Old Testament, remember. And all the New Testament says is just remember Lot's wife. 